Hello and welcome once again to the Ranking the Albums podcast. Um, in this episode I'm looking at Kate Bush and her discography, ranking her 10 albums from worst to best. Um, despite releasing her first two records in 1978, Kate Bush is notorious for only releasing albums sporadically over a 42-year career. Um, most well known, of course, for her first hit single, Wuthering Heights. Um, her albums range from her really precocious and often overly whimsical style to her 80s albums, which saw her refining her sound with enviable craft and while still retaining an eccentric and very British identity. Her songs have often written from unusual, bizarre perspectives and her music willfully flirts with both the ridiculous and the sublime. It's hard to categorise her or say she belongs to a particular genre, except maybe experimental pop music. Um, now for the countdown. At number 10 I start with The Red Shoes, um, released in 1993. This is the last album she released before a 12-year absence to raise her son, Bertie. Um, it came after a tumultuous few years. Um, her mother died in the early 90s and she separated from her romantic and musical partner, Dale Palmer, who appears on the album nonetheless. So, so it was quite a fraught time, and that, that kind of uh, is, is demonstrated on the album. Um, but it lacks focus and cohesion. It's weirdly more 80s than her 80s work, with this dreaded, dated, gated snare sound that's ever-present. It's very overproduced. And she tries to showcase a range with this album, um, she kind of continues the world and Celtic influences of the sensual world, her previous album, but also funk and pop. And in many ways it's comparable to Elvis Costello's Spike, which was released in 1989, I believe, um, in that it tries everything except having good judgement. Um, and despite being ranked worse, I don't think it's a terrible album that I choose. It has decent tracks, um, and it's not as if it isn't listenable by any means. Song of Solomon is a is a highlight with a great lyric. Don't want your bullshit, just want your sexuality. Um, there's also Moments of Pleasure, which is a bit schmaltzy, but contains a great vocal and piano performance from Kate, and is one of her most personal songs, um, written partly in response to her mother dying. Um, so there's some guest appearances on this album that are a little bit baffling. Uh, particularly from Eric Clapton, who plays these incongruous blues licks over the otherwise quite intriguing track, And So Is Love. And you've got Jeff Beck doing a similar job on one of the other tracks. Lenny Henry appears, and and so does Prince. And Prince appears on the song um, Why Should I Love You? Um, and this just sounds like Prince has hijacked a Kate Bush song. Big Stripey Lie, um, this song sees uh, Kate Bush play guitar. Um, she's not a guitarist. It's kind of like a Nine Inch Nails-esque song that's kind of discordant and atypical of, of her work. A rubber Band Girl is a key track in which she kind of celebrates her desire to bounce around in different musical directions. And it kind of highlights the fact that she's self-aware to know that she's all over the place on this album. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, like she she made this album apparently, and she wanted more of a live sound after her very refined studio albums in in the eighties that really couldn't be reproduced on on stage. Supposedly, she was due to tour the album, and that never materialised. Um, 
The other problem with this album at 55 minutes is quite long, so maybe only one for hardcore fans. It suffers massively in comparison to her 80s work. At number nine, uh, we have Director's Cut from 2011. Oh, how, to, how to explain Director's Cut? Well, considering how rarely Kate Bush releases albums, it was inevitably going to be disappointing um, with, with um, the Director's Cut because it's effectively a re-release of her previous albums. It's, it's a composite of songs from the Red Shoes album and the album that preceded it, uh, The Sensual World. And both of those albums have, you know, quite a dated drum sound, so I can kind of see why she might have regretted that, but I'm not 100% sure why this album needed to be made and released. And yeah, but by removing the gated drum sound, the production is less of a distraction. Um, but yeah, the songs from the sensual world lack the same punch. Her vocals on some tracks are from the original versions and some are re-recorded. So th there's this massive contrast between her older, slightly huskier voice and then her younger, more dynamic range. Um, and that contrast shows this album up as a bit confused. The Red Shoes tracks are marginally better than they are in the original album, but the material was never that strong to warrant the remake anyway track and so is love still features clapton's terrible blues legs um but yeah the director's cut offers a more soft sparse sound more in keeping with the textures of 50 words for snow and ariel those kind of later um kate bush albums um it's less of a mixed bag than the red shoes but yeah just the overriding takeaway i get from this album is what was the point at number eight we have lionheart from 1978. This is the difficult second album, um, but it wasn't entirely Kate's fault that it, that it came to be that way. So the record label pressured her to kind of quickly record and capitalise on, on the successful debut album, The Kick Inside, which was released earlier in the year. And the end result is it's just rushed, muddled, difficult. I place it at number eight um, because she had more studio time, more creative freedom to create the red shoes and the director's cut. So she has more of an excuse with Lionheart that, that is not as strong an album. But yeah, this doesn't really replicate any of the magic from her debut album, The Kick Inside. She often mistakes the whimsical for the interesting. It does have Wow on it, um, which is one of her best early tunes uh, about kind of a self-pitying, failing actor. It has this mysterious opening a superb chord progression in the verse and a big chorus with mandolins and Kate repeating wow hypnotically um, great string arrangement on that track too otherwise the better songs include the harpsichord la laden uh, Oh England My Lionheart and the rockier Don't Push Your Foot on the Heartbreak but these are guilty pleasures at best um, it's an important album in her development um, Kate Bush later said it was rushed, and that was responsible for me taking as much time as possible over albums, subsequently. Considering how quickly we, we made Lionheart, it's a bloody good album, but I'm not really happy with it. So yeah, for her, it underlined a need for more time and more control to craft records in the studio, and you definitely get that with her subsequent albums. But yeah, even given its rush nature, Lionheart is just not a strong album by any stretch. If you especially like The Kick Inside, I think you'll like the style of this. 
it's arguably more theatrical, with the cabaret style of Coffee Homegrown, for example, kind of indicating that the album was really written for the stage. Um, like the Red Shoes, supposedly, wasn't it? Kind of suffers because of that. She did her first and what was to be her last tour for a long time after this album, during which tragedy struck when um, her light, lighting engineer died in an accident after falling after a show. And I think that's another reason why she becomes almost exclusively a studio artist after this record, on top of finding touring just exhausting. So I, th- I think we've covered the disappointing Kate Bush albums, and now we're going to move on to a couple that are good, if a little flawed, at seven, and this is probably the most controversial placing within this list. It's uh, Ariel from 2005, the big comeback album. And what I will say is it, it's split into two discs. You have um, A Sea of Honey, which is a, a disc of, of unrelated songs, and then the second disc is A Sky of Honey, which is one whole suite of music. Um, and the first disc is, is pretty good. Um, the comeback single, King of the Mountain, with its ethereal synths, drums that are soft but somehow heavy, these scratchy guitars playing a reggae-ish rhythm, and then you have Kate's Elvis impression. Um, and, and despite all these very disparate elements, the song really works so well in spite of all that. Um, I really like the swampish blues of How to Be Invisible. Um, the song Bertie um, is this kind of renaissance-sounding ballad in where, where she kind of acts like this embarrassing mum, which is quite endearing to hear. Um, Mrs. Bartolozzi is a piano ballad in which Kate plaintively sings the words washing machine, washing machine. Um, she kind of makes domestic drudgery sound emotional and profound, but there's a, a tongue firmly in cheek. And yeah, it's, it's this humour that's throughout Kate Bush's entire career that I think people overlook, but it, it's definitely there on that track. Um, yeah, so I know it's a typical thing to say about double albums, but this album would have been better as two separate albums or if um, Kate had just released the first disc. The second disc, Sky of Honey, is less a collection of tracks but one whole ambitious piece like the second side of Hounds of Love and it had its moments but for me it isn't especially captivating given given its runtime, its length, of, it's about 42 minutes or so. Um, there were fewer guest appearances on this album uh, compared with The Red Shoes. Rolf Harris pops up on the original release um, he wasn't on the 2018 reissue after being imprisoned, unsurprisingly. I know I'm being harsh on this album, and many fans rate this amongst Kate Bush's very best. But for me, the album drags. Conceptually, it's not that strong. It's ambitious and admirable in its scope, but for me, yeah, it's just not among the best. It's never clicked with me. At number six, we have 50 Words for Snow from 2011, her most recent album. I don't really know if there's going to be another album anytime soon. I'm sure she'll just pop up from nowhere and release something brilliant. Um, but 50 Words for Snow, it's it's got this beautiful sound. It's very sparse, yet expansive, full of wintry soundscapes and jazzy touches. Um, with just seven tracks, it's over an hour long, but it demands to be listened to as a whole. And like quite a lot of Ariel, it emphasises texture over conventional songwriting. The opening track, Snowman, has choir boy vocals from Kate's son, Bertie. And other highlights include Wild Man, one of the more accessible tracks on the album. The title track as well is great, with Stephen Fry intonating 
words like psycho hail and whippochino and 48 other comedic words for snow. Um, Kate duets with Elton John on the actually really good ballad Snowden at Wheeler Street. And these guest appearances seem to complement Kate Bush rather than, you know, the the Prince and Eric Clapton appearances who seem to only appear on the Red Students as kind of these vanity collaborations. I really like this album. Like Ariel, it's got this proggy vibe, but it's more mysterious, more focused conceptually. And even though it is a beautiful, cohesive and well-made album, because it's long, it does prohibit repeated listens. But the other thing that does that is the fact that it's got a, <laughs> a winter theme. So, it, you know, it, it's undeniably an ideal accompaniment for a proper snow day. Um, and that means it's not suitable for any other occasion. And I listened to it recently, and it <laughs> it's August as I record this, and I'm currently sweating buckets. You need a winter's day to really appreciate this album properly. Okay, these next two records are excellent in places, but a little bit flawed too, so they're not quite in amongst the the top spots. At number five, I'm going to place Never Forever. Uh, This is her third album, released in 1980. And this one's a bit of a transitional album between her early zany style and then the textured, studio-orientated approach of the rest of her 80s albums. I'll start with the bad tracks. The Wedding List and Violin, these sound like outtakes from the Lionheart album. Um, In the latter track, Kate mimics a violin. It's a bit of a misguided rock tune. Um, The Wedding List is quite catchy, but it sounds a bit behind the curve in comparison to the more progressive tracks on the album. Moving away from the piano-based approach to songwriting that's heard on Lionheart, she introduces drum machines on tracks like Delius. There's lots of fretless bass, so it's now very 80s sounding, but I guess it would have sounded incredibly fresh at the time as would the sound effects courtesy of the then brand new Fairlight synthesizer. This allowed users to sample any sound, hence the smashed glass sounds on Babushka. And this opening track, which is a lot of fun, is a tale of a wife who tests the loyalty of her husband by adopting the guise of the titular Babushka. It has winding verses that lead to this wild shrieking chorus I absolutely love. Um, The album does kind of tail off for a bit in the middle, with its effects, arrangements and production more impressive than the actual compositions. That's until the last few tracks which really raised this album's reputation for me. So there's this really chilling track called The Infant Kiss. It's based on the film The Innocence, which I believe was was released in the early 60s. And the premise behind it is um, a man's ghost takes form in the body of a child. And the song is written from the perspective of a woman who falls passionately in love with this ghost man child. So it's quite uncomfortable subject matter, and it has a suitably chilling arrangement to match. When at the end, um, Kate's singing Let It Go, it's ambiguous whether she's referring to letting go of her affections for the ghost man child, or to let go of her inhibitions about it. Army Dreamers is another stunner. It's a... uh, An anti-war Celtic waltz, uh, written from the perspective of a mother grieving her young son who's joined the armed forces and has subsequently perished. There's this eerie sound effect which mimics the cocking of guns, and that's juxtaposed with these tender mandolins, which makes this really lovely contrast. 
Breathing is another interesting tune. It's written from the perspective of a fetus in the womb during a post-apocalyptic nuclear fallout. It's an epic track apparently influenced by Pink Floyd's album The Wall. The chorus has Kate the fetus singing, breathing the fallout in, out, in, out. And the fretless bass on this track slides up and down really queasily to give this very disturbing effect. There's this proggy midsection where there's a, a distant news report um, playing describing a nuclear blast. For the finale, growling guitars and drum fills come in, which concludes with a powerful cry from Kate. Oh God, please leave us something to breathe. What's astonishing about this is that Army Dreamers and Breathing were released as singles with their political lyrics ambitious arrangements. And I think that's testament to Kate Bush's increasing confidence as an artist at this stage. Never Forever is an accessible, experimental pop album that's definitely worth your time. It's fair to say it's a bit patchy in the middle, but it does have some really excellent, ambitious tracks. And it lays the groundwork for the experiments of the Dreaming and the Hounds of Love album. Okay, so at number four, I've gone for The Kick Inside from 1978. This is her debut. Um, she wrote this album as a teenager over several years, and it's an incredibly impressive achievement. It has, admittedly, soft rock instrumentation, and it's mostly piano-led, but that masks the complexity of the tunes. Opening tracks moving, saxophone song are particularly strong. James and the Cold Gun is one of Kate's most convincing forays into full-on rock and roll. Them Heavy People is catchy, but slightly annoying. It has this accessible, warm sound, even despite the fact that Kate's vocals are just from another world, kind of shrieking away with melodies that just somehow come from nowhere, just are really challenging in spite of this kind of smooth backing. And the high-pitched keening vocals are really typified by Wuthering Heights. And it's taken me a long time to appreciate this track. I used to hate it as a kid, but even now I appreciate it more than I love it. On the Kick Inside, Sex and Desire are sung about with great frankness, particularly on the track Feel It, um, which kind of looks at the complexities of female sexuality, um, of which I know nothing, so I'm not going to talk about that. Some tracks like the reggae-inspired Kites are way too busy and try-hard and naive-sounding, but some tracks are sophisticated and daring beyond her years. I'm thinking of The Man With The Child In His Eyes, and the final track, which is the title track, The Kick Inside, and that's written from the perspective of a girl who is pregnant with her brother's baby. Um, the Kick Inside refers to the baby kicking inside. To hide the discovery of their incest, it becomes apparent the song is a suicide note. This ends the album on an incredibly heavy note, but because it's a, it's a beautiful melody, it's affecting despite its incredibly taboo subject. It's a precursor to the infant's kiss in that it's a, it's a bold topic to write about. Um, if you can't stand Wuthering Heights, you're probably going to hate this album. Kate's voice can be quite grating at times, so you certainly have to be in the right mood for it. Still, you can't deny her songwriting talent on this album. The, the arrangements are mostly intelligent and playful, and the melodies and lyrics are mostly strong too. But overall, the band on this album sound a little straight, a little conventional. 
It's only on Kate's vocals and lyrics you can hear the weirdness creeping in. The Kick Inside isn't quite so much of an adventure as the top three albums. So at number three, we have The Sensual Worlds, released in 1989. It's uh, the follow-up to the Hands of Love album. While it's a slight step back conceptually and experimentally, it's only a very small step back. It's not a bland middle-of-the-road album by any means. It's highly ambitious and has a broad canvas sonically. The sound of the album is thoughtful and textured, with big warm washes of synth, alongside traditional acoustic guitar and piano, with occasional Celtic instrumentation being thrown in too. Most distinctively, there's Trio Bulgarka. So these guys were a Bulgarian vocal group who appear on three of the album's tracks. They couldn't speak English, so God knows what they're actually singing, but their folky, earthy, European sound blends well with the Celtic instruments, as well as the synthesized sounds on this record. On the track Rocket's Tail, they managed to outshine the guitar solo um, from Pink Floyd's uh, David Gilmore. And uh, Trio Bokaka, they had this fantastic counterpoint to the track Deeper Understanding. And this is a track about humans becoming dependent on computers to the extent that they are isolated socially. Kate's vulnerable sounding vocal underscores that point. The chorus of that track seems to presciently hint at what algorithms essentially act as today. Hello, I know you've been feeling tired. I bring you love and deeper understanding. Hello, I know that you're unhappy. I bring you love and deeper understanding. So there's something comforting but also quite insidious about the whole track. The Sensual World's title track opens the album, and this is a sensual-sounding track with whispered, sultry vocals, um, warm cinematic keyboards, Irish pipes, and this big, thudding drum sound. Um, It was originally supposed to be Molly Bloom's speech from the end of James Joyce's Ulysses set to music, but Kate wasn't granted the rights from the Joyce estate, so she made her own version. but I love the sensual world. It's, it's vivid, subtly sexual, and the pipes play this melody based on a Macedonian folk tune. So this, there's, there's a clever blend of styles that's very open to the world. The Fog is a, is a great track too. It has this jazzy laid back sound on the verse, and that gives way to these sweeping washes of orchestra eventually. This woman's work ends the record, and it's a tearjerker, a dramatic piano ballad. Um, The opening of the track was used on an advert for the NSPCC charity in the mid-noughties, so it's hard for me to listen to this track without visualising black and white footage of children crying. Ignoring that, it's a fine composition. It was written for the film She's Having a Baby. So the sensual world is not quite as surprising or as much of an adventure as The Dreaming or Hounds of Love, but it's still an interesting, original, well-crafted, distinctive record. Um, it's an album that's grown on me massively. It's just this this blend of traditional European folk and synth pop, which is incredibly seductive. At number two, we have The Dreaming, released in 1982. It's described as her mad album, although truth be told, a lot of Kate Bush's music is a bit mad. But this one is, is a big break from her past. Um, on the dreaming, conventional song structures are subverted, untethered. The songs take detours, left turns. 
Um, Kate explores the possibilities of her own voice, the possibilities of the studio, and she adds layer after layer of special effects, percussion and synths. It's a dense mesh of analogue and digital, but not a mess. It's all supremely crafted. You don't get a sense of that on the first listen because it's <laughs> because conceitedly it is bewildering. It's only with repeated listens that you grasp the order behind the the seeming chaos. Um, sat in your lap, the lead track has a stop-start rhythm and wears its maximalism proudly. Um, there goes a tenor. The second track is about a botched burglary. <laughs> it's this jaunty oompa tune with cheesy piano and Kate sing speaks in a mockney accent. And then the chorus comes in and it has this fretless bass and synths that bring the, the momentum right down to a halt and it enters this really weird trance-like moment that just is just so jarring but really interesting compared to this otherwise very jaunty tune. And as the title suggests, there's plenty of dreamlike moments on this record. Um, and there's also nightmarish moments too, particularly on the final track, Get Out of My House, which is um, inspired by Stephen King's The Shining. Um, most notably, it has Kate shrieking and impersonating a hee-hawing donkey at the end. Um, I don't remember that from the film, <laughs> to be honest. It's quite a gothic track. Um, it's reminiscent of Susie and the Banshees. Leave It Open, which climaxes in a very similar way to um, Phil Collins's In the Air Tonight with these this big drum fill and heavy processed drums, um, except uh, this song has also has um, grinding synths and, and, and some vocals that were, that were recorded backwards and then played forwards, and she's singing We Let the Weirdness In to, and this kind of weird banshee voice. Pull Out the Pin is an exotic-sounding track. It's about the Vietnam War, but from the perspective of a Viet Cong soldier. And the title track... Um, it's about the exploitation of the Aboriginal people in Australia by colonisers. And it's incredibly weird and percussive. There's a sound effect of screeching tyres and then Kate's dodgy accent. Banger goes another kanga on the bonnet of the van. And it's easy to think at this point that it's a gimmicky tune, but its seriousness becomes clear when Kate sings The civilised keep alive the territorial war Erase the race that claim the place and say we dig for all. Um, Rolf Harris is playing the didgeridoo and he's kept on the 2018 reissue of the album um, very selective in your in your erasure of Rolf Harris, Kate um, I love this album's fearlessness I love that it's hugely imaginative but hugely challenging with it it's saying something when one of the most conventional songs on the album is, is titled Suspended in Gaffer there's a head-spinning amount of layers to unravel it definitely takes a few listens for the melodies to sink in. But when they do, there's a lot to marvel at with this record. It's, it's eccentric, highly original, and it's only surpassed in these rankings by, by her following record, which is her masterpiece. And my number one choice, it is Hounds of Love, released in 1985. It's not only her best record, it's one of the best of the 1980s. And just a bit of context, the dreaming baffled critics... Um, and it wasn't a commercial success either. Um, so she took time out to craft Hounds of Love. And it's an album of pure artistry. She built her own studio in the backyard barn of her family home and then set to work on the album. And it's split into two sides um, it, and conceived of two suites. 
uh, side eight is called Hounds of Love. Um, the songs are unrelated, but explore the topic of love from several perspectives. So you have, uh, from one end, the big sky, which is a wide-eyed song about admiring the vastness of the clouds and the sky. Um, the title track covers the confused pangs of an, of an early sexual awakening. Running up that hill seems to be about a loving relationship that's experiencing strain. Um, so Kate Bush wants to metaphysically trade places with her lover, and apparently that will sort out their problems. Mother Stands for Comfort is, is about motherly love for, for son, but the son in this case is a murderer, but she loves him so much that she's prepared to, to protect him and cover him at all costs. Cloudbusting is about a child's love for his father. It's based on um, psychoanalyst William Reich's memoir, A Book of Dreams. Reich and his son supposedly spent time cloudbusting, or in other words, making it rain, uh, using a device um, built by Reich called a cloudbuster, which Reich claimed could produce rain by manipulating what he called organ, uh, organ energy present in the atmosphere. Reich is eventually arrested and imprisoned, um, I believe for unrelated fraud, but from Kate's lyrics, the son's perspective gives the impression that Reich has been arrested for his mad brilliance. It's like Mother Stands for Comfort, in the sense that, because of unconditional familial love, um, it offers an unreliably biased perspective. The lyrics touch on the helplessness and the loss the son feels. Um, after after his father is taken away. I can't hide you from the government, but oh God, Daddy, I, I won't forget. The chorus in this context is very poignant too, with the line, every time it rains, you're here in my head, like the sun coming out. The magic of this song is that you can enjoy it at surface level too. I initially thought it was just a simple song about the joy of the sun coming out. It's not just love that's the theme of these songs. There's There's real wonder to them too and the arrangements fit these themes they're very earthy and very sensuous and warm sounding they're not in any way discordant and jarring like in on the dreaming there's a completely different sonic palette and it manages this even though there's a lot going on in the mix the smooth drum sounds breathy vocals on lead tracks running up that hill and hounds of love the cellos and string section on cloud busting um meld with the synthetic um, processed drum sounds and this yeah this lovely mix of the synthetic and the earthy which is just this this brilliant sonic landscape that she manages on this album and and on the sensual world but but it's really perfected on this one um hounds of love running up that hill and cloud busting were all singles and all three are among her best and most popular tunes and yeah the first side of Hansel of is mostly, you know, bright, accessible, experimental, experimental pop at its best. The second side, subtitled The Ninth Wave, forms a conceptual suite about a person in a life jacket drifting alone in the sea at night. How they got there is, is completely irrelevant. It's, it's just a very dramatic premise. And Dream of Sheep is, is the first track of this side, and it starts the narrative in medias res, um, the subject has already been adrift at sea for some time, no context given, and it's a stunning piano-led track with another beautiful, desperately sad melody. The hopelessness of the subject trying to stay awake, but also begging, let me be weak, 
let me sleep and dream of sheep. At the end of the song, the narrator loses consciousness and her confused, unconscious state of mind in the freezing cold water leads to hallucinatory, terrifying music that makes, makes the second side of Hounds of Love quite a trip, particularly on the tracks um, Waking the Witch and, and the, the Irish-sounding Jig of Life. Um, spoiler alert, um, at, at the end of the album, she's rescued, <laughs> and you, you hear this in, in the folky-sounding track, The Morning Fog, which is a gorgeous, bright-sounding track that, that captures the euphoria of being pulled out of the water and, and knowing that you're safe and that you get to see your loved ones again. She sings of being born again. I'll tell my loved ones how much I love them. The Hounds of Love makes for a fascinating listening experience. It's imaginative, emotive, melodic. It's, it's just so many different elements to it and you can listen to it again and again and pick up new things that, that you haven't noticed before. It's the perfect midpoint of her career. It's lush sounding and mature like the sensual world and aerial. It's a product of studio innovation and creativity like the dreaming and she keeps enough of her quirkiness of that album and her early work for it not to be too mature and too grown up. Kate Bush is a truly great and underrated artist. Her discography is consistent, interesting and unique. I hope this list inspires people to listen to more of her albums. Despite the rankings, I'd, I'd re recommend The Uninitiated to listen first to the compilation album, The Whole Story. Um, which is not the whole story by any stretch. It was it was released in 1986, so it misses her later career. But it does a very serviceable job of capturing her work up until the, the Hounds of Love album. After that, I'd say the Hounds of Love, the Kick Inside and Never Forever are good starting points. I wouldn't recommend anybody starts with the dreaming. That, that seems completely mad. You need to kind of get to know Kate Bush before you take on that album. I'd even say with, with Hounds of Love, it's the first side that you, that was so accessible, then the second side might take a bit more time, but it's, it's worth it. So that's all. I hope you've learned something. I hope you appreciate Kate Bush even more after this. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.